And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including hosts Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome. I'm Dan Hesse, and I'll be your host today. Thanks for joining us. Jack Swarbrick just completed his 15th year as the James E. Rohr Director of Athletics at the University of Notre Dame. After graduating from Notre Dame, Jack went to Stanford for law school. Because of his wide-ranging experience in the business of and governance of athletics, by representing organizations such, such as the NCAA and the U.S. Olympic Committee as a successful lawyer before becoming an athletic director, Jack is particularly influential in matters impacting college athletics. His on-the-field performance is impressive. During his tenure as athletic director, eight Notre Dame teams have won NCAA national championships and 11 have been runners-up. And the Notre Dame men have won two Capital One Cups given annually to the NCAA's best Division One men's athletic program overall. Welcome, Jack. Uh, congratulations on graduating another group of athletes last week, and congrats on the men's lacrosse team just making the final four. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it's been a it's been a good spring, um, but we're especially uh, fond of those graduation weekends because um, for 17 years now we've finished first or second in the country in graduation success rate, and that's important to us. That's great. By the way, um, roughly what percentage of Notre Dame athletes graduate? Um, well, there's certainly two measures of that. There's graduate at all from anywhere. Um, and um, that that number tends to be in the in the 90s, in the low 90s. But those who stay at Notre Dame, it's up in the high 90s, about 98 percent. Well, that's terrific. Well, congrats. Um so when you were offered the job um, as athletic director at Notre Dame, you were a successful attorney. You had never been an athletic director. Why were you told you were offered the job? And then why did you accept it? Well, you know, that's a, that's a, it's a pretty funny story because I got the call out of the blue from Father Jenkins, who happens to be a classmate of mine, although we didn't know each other in school. Uh, asking me if I might be interested because the position was open with Kevin White having gone to Duke. I told him that I wasn't, but that I felt pretty strongly about what Notre Dame ought to be thinking about as it selected its next athletic director. He said, why don't you come up and talk to me? And, you know, we'll have dinner together. And I'd, I'd like your, your, in, your insight. And so I went up and had dinner with him, and it was a fascinating two hours and I walked out of the dinner and I called my wife and I said, honey, I still don't know if I want to be an athletic director, but I want to work with this guy. He has such a strong vision for the university and what, what he thought it could become. Turns out later when I share that perspective with him, he says, Jack, I was even less interested in you than you were in the job. I just had so many people tell me I had to talk to you. I was trying to check it off the list. So Two, two people, neither of whom thought it was the right answer, wound up concluding that maybe this would work, and uh, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. 
Well, yeah, I guess, um, well, as you mentioned, you were both classmates, class of 76. I know you would have both preferred you and Father Jenkins to be members of the class of 75, but I think you were both held back a year. (laughs) (laughs) We were um, were trying to make up for the class of 75. (laughs) So uh, we're going to talk about, you know, recent changes in college athletics. But, you know, since you've been AD, I mean, there have been constant rapid changes because of the competitiveness of of college sports. So you as an as an AD have had to be innovative. You know, Notre Dame's a very, well, let's say a tradition-bound school. There's a lot of tradition, which I think is both a blessing and a curse. And as you know the uh, too well, the alumni value that tradition, which can sometimes be a resistance to change. What that's what's that been like for you? Yeah, in my experience. Anytime you do something twice at Notre Dame, it becomes a tradition. Um, and, and you have to be so so mindful of that and careful. It, your question's a really good one because a big part of what I've had to do is try and change the mindset a little bit. Honor the traditions that matter and, and embrace them, but be much more open to change. And um, We started with small things and just continued to work at them until I think there was a much better willingness to embrace change um but you know we went from from natural grass to artificial turf and a okay. lot of people a lot of people are very unhappy about that we piped music into the stadium for the first time uh and the, we, and the jumbotron a lot of people didn't like that when you put that in there <laughs> that's right and uh and, and and when we changed when we did mass so it's historically been pre-game and brian wanted to do it on friday um, out of a out of a desire to have the guys pay a little more attention than they tended to when they were ready to walk into the stadium, and uh, boy, that did not go over well at all. Let me tell you. Well, Jack. Um, uh, by the way, I, I for one, I really appreciate all the changes that uh, that that you, you have made there. You know, we have a lot of business people on on this call that listen to this program, uh, and. We know how important leadership talent is. No matter what job we're filling in business, it's hard to think of any role where choosing the right leader is more important than choosing the right head coach on a sporting team because their their impact is is, is so broad. How do you go about finding and recruiting the right head coach? Yeah, um, we follow a very particular process. Um, that, that has served us very well. The key to that is the discipline of starting by identifying the characteristics that you want for the coach. I never let anybody raise the prospect of a candidate. I never, no candidate names. Don't talk to me about any candidates until we have the characteristics identified. And they change from coach to coach and year to year. The characteristics that we used to define the search that hired Brian Kelly did not look like the characteristics we used to define the search that hired Marcus Freeman. The program was in a different place. It needed different things. When when we hired Brian, the program was very broken. When we hired Marcus, the program was in good shape. We needed some other things. And so it's the discipline of identifying those characteristics. Then we literally screened all of the active coaches, head, sitting head coaches in that sport in Division One, against those characteristics. 
and some others from perhaps the professional ranks or otherwise. That initial screen takes us down to a more manageable number. And then we, we still relying on the characteristics, do a deep dive on the candidates that emerge from that process. Step three is the initial contact with them to, to gauge interest and learn more about them. Stage four is getting together with them, but also starting to reach out to third parties who know them well. Each one of those sorts, from the largest to the smallest, where you're down to a final couple, we always come back to the characteristics and evaluate, okay, we've got some new information now. What does that tell us about their their appropriateness, or their, the, the way they match the characteristics? We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Notre Dame Director of Athletics, Jack Swarbrick. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on List of Shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with Notre Dame's renowned athletics director, Jack Swarbrick, discussing the future of college sports. Remember, you can also listen to this show or any previous show via podcast on Apple, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, and more on any device at any time. Subscribe at thementorsradio.com. So one of the changes, uh, Jack, that we're seeing in college sports is conference realignment. You know, I have a hard time getting my head around Nebraska, USC, and UCLA being in the, being in the big, big 10. What's your take on conference um, realignment and uh, kind of in its regularity? It doesn't seem to be over with. Yeah, I think that that insight's correct, Dan. I, I don't, I don't anticipate it's over with. I think it's there are too many points of instability right now. We've seen that play out in recent weeks with some public discussion from various schools about their interest and what they'd like to see happen. Um, we, as as college sports, we haven't done ourselves any favors with realignment. Um, conferences originally were built off some geographic parameters and some similarity in the institutions. Let's talk, let's talk about the original Big Ten, if you will, right? All large land-grant institutions, research institutions of great renown. Northwestern isn't, isn't land-grant, but it, you know, it's the same caliber, relatively geographically condensed. And they had, they had a great culture and still do have a great culture, I'm sure. But as you, as you grew, and the Big Ten, of course, is not alone, the geography started to stretch. And the, the strength of the cultural adherence started to become a little less compelling. And, and neither have been great. They have been great for purposes of producing revenue uh, and responding to especially the emergence of cable television networks. And it, that's sort of interesting because as a, uh, as, as a major force in conference realignment, now, of course, cable networks are headed in the other direction in terms of subscribers. So uh, very fluid, um, not our finest hour. And I hope from here we can uh, we can put ourselves in a position that maybe it works a little better for the student athletes than it has to date. 
This is Dan Hesse. You are listening to the Mentors Radio Show, and we are with Jack Swarbrick discussing the role of a university's athletics director. So uh, I think, Jack, you know, you and Notre Dame were actually early proponents of and supporters of NIL or name, image, and likeness. But, you know, the well-publicized letter that you and university president, uh, Father Jenkins, sent to the New York Times you know, indicates that um, you're seeing kind of a lack of guidelines uh, around NIL, which allows uh, for, let's say, some abuse. Can you tell us why you like the concept of name, image, and likeness, um, but uh, not the way it's being implemented today? Sure, I'd be happy to. And you're right. In 2015, Father John gave an interview to the New York Times and advocated for name, image, and likeness for student-athletes. NCA rules prohibited it, said they, they could not engage in it. The reason for that is a, a, an orientation we have to a lot of questions, which is you shouldn't draw a distinction between the experience of a student who's an athlete and one who isn't, unless there's a compelling reason to do it. And there was no compelling reason to say the average student on campus could take advantage of their name, image, and likeness but the athlete couldn't the music student could go down to a club on friday night and play and make money and that's great well you know why why were we drawing this distinction so we wanted them to have the opportunity to do it we never anticipated it would come on board without any guidance any gov any any governance over it and unfortunately because of some competitive dynamics What's happened is most of what is described as name, image, and likeness today has absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. Mm -hmm. They are talent acquisition fees. They're, they're, they're a form of compensation for coming to the school and playing the sport. And, and that was never what it was intended to be. Um, if, if, if we want to head down that road, let's head down it consciously, not by misdescribing things as name, image, and likeness. They're simply not. I think you, but you've used examples where students are actually using it for good, name, image, and likeness. Can you yeah, describe right. that? Yeah. I mean, we're proud of the extent to which our student athletes are involved in, as part of their activity for name, image, and likeness in promoting local charitable organizations like the Boys and Girls Club and the Ronald McDonald House and, and, and the food banks. Um, that's a great, that's a great example of name, image, and likeness. I love what some athletes around the country are doing, generating millions of dollars through social media activity. You know, there's some, some very famous ones. I think what they're doing is fantastic. That's true name, image, and likeness. But as a, a junior athlete in high school getting paid a bunch of money for name, image, and likeness, if he or she goes to a certain school, that's not that's not name image likeness, um, and, and and we have to draw that distinction. There's something really uneasy about all of America's colleges and universities participating in this sort of you know exercise yeah. in describing something as what it's not. Um, we we shouldn't we shouldn't be comfortable with that. By the way, what's standing in the NCAA's way of of putting some guidelines around it? Well, there are two things. One. I, I think a, peri a period of time during when this came online where there was a change in leadership going on. And so um, you, you really didn't have somebody in a position um, 
and feeling empowered to do something. And the other is uh, the, the NCA has a, has a very perfect record in losing lawsuits. And I think they've, uh, they, uh. They've, become, they've, they've become pretty paranoid about even putting themselves in a position where they might get sued. And so they've, uh, they've really shied away. So, by the way, you talk about it as a recruiting tool. Um, you know, do you see it creating other issues like teammates on the same team earning vastly different sums, or people in different sports, or perhaps driving a, a difference between, you know, men's and women's athletics? And you know, what what kind of complications you know could that create? Well, all of those are potential complications. Um, We've worked very hard to try and avoid them, but I've certainly have had conversations with colleagues where where they've had those problems in the locker room or, or otherwise. And again, you you get that result because it's not a true market at work relative to publicity. It, it's it's a market at work that says, "Boy, we really need a a, a cornerback. Let's go get this this young man." Or, we need a point guard on our women's basketball team. Let's go get that, this young woman. That's very different. And uh, it, 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 for us, is very inconsistent with what we hope college athletics should be and is. Yeah. Um, on a related topic, you know, the, the university's you know, main responsibility you know, to student athletes, perhaps, is to mentor, develop character, life skills, What's your take on the transfer portal um, and the ability, it seems, to kind of transfer, you know, every year? Uh, and, and what does that do to your ability, the university's ability, a coach's de- ability to develop, uh, you know, kind of deep mentoring relationships with young athletes? Yeah, Dan, you hit on a really important topic, and that is the connection between what has become fairly unregulated transferring um, and the ability to mentor and teach. Uh, Coach Freeman the other day was talking about this and he said, in, in the high school recruiting, you've been in the living room. You know the parents. You've talked to them for over a year in most cases. You're in a position to continue to mentor. The transfer portal plays out in days and weeks and, and you don't you don't have the same relationship established. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Jack Swarbrick, discussing how to hire the right leadership. Remember, you can listen live to our Saturday broadcasts anywhere in the world by going to San Francisco 860 The Answer. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with Notre Dame Athletics Director Jack Swarbrick about new developments in college athletics. So uh, in addition to uh, calling for more NCAA leadership, uh, as, as we've been discussing, Jack, you've asked um, the NFL to create a minor league as an alternative to, uh, to college and the NBA to eliminate the one-and-done rule to allow 18-year-olds to go directly into the league and keep college athletics from simply becoming a minor leagues. Um, it's you know kind of like almost a little bit more like baseball, where there's really two tracks to the to the pros. There's college, and then there's another track. 
Um, have you gotten feedback from your peers or from the NBA or the NFL on on your thoughts? Uh, yeah, everybody everybody thinks I'm crazy, so that's 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 been the feedback, um, and I understand it, and, and I understand all the reasons why um, it's unlikely. As much as anything, I was trying to make the point of the distinction you've drawn. The talented baseball player has a choice to make out of high school, and and he can go and accept a professional contract and develop his skills in the minor leagues on the way to hopefully getting a major league baseball. Hockey player, same exact dynamic. Individual sport athletes like tennis players and golfers, no one ever criticizes them for not going to college if they're really talented, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that option is very helpful because there's a choice being made about where your priority is. In football, uniquely, you don't have an alternative. And so you may be completely indifferent to the education elements of that the school provides to you but you still have to go to school go to college and those young people deserve an alternative route when you put them in an environment they don't want to be in because they don't value that aspect of of the experience that's not healthy for them it's not healthy for the school and so that's the point we were trying to make um it's um it, it, it's challenging for us because we don't we we want to help young people reach their goals, whether it's med school or major league baseball. Um, but we don't want to do that outside the context of education, and 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 that's that was the essence of the the letter that Father John and I penned to the uh, New York Times. Well, it was um, I, can, I can imagine you got quite a reaction from it. Um, This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to the Mentors Radio Show. We are talking with Jack Swarbrick about how money is changing college sports. So, Jack, you've also said that you think the eventual breakup of the NCAA is inevitable, driven largely by, you know, the money, you know, the big money that comes especially from football and from uh, men's basketball. Um, And you predict that the breakup will come in, I think, roughly 10 years, largely kind of after some of these big TV contracts that the conferences have. And what do you think college sports will look like after that? You know, what will things look like if there is a, you know, kind of a breakup? Yeah. And a little context in this. One of the reasons we've struggled so much with the issues we're struggling with in terms of regulating them and and coming to pathways that make sense for the students um, is the nature of the association. It's over 1,100 colleges and universities. Any business association, not just the NCAA, has to have a sufficient commonality of interest to operate. If you don't, it's it's too hard. Well, we've lost that commonality of interest. The, the, The financial ranges are so broad. The cultural ranges have become so broad that you have a lot of people in the same association who are no longer engaged in the same enterprise. That's the tension I've referred to. And I, I think inevitably it, it becomes too strong to be able to manage. So um, if it's broken up, I mean, do you see kind of two tracks schools that are going to like pay players and they're comp- kind of compete on that level and others that are going to focus on academics and, and, you know, if so, will this, will they play each other? And and if so, do you think you know it, 
why would a student pick, we'll call it the academic track versus we'll call it the minor league track for lack of a better term? Yeah. Um, the good news is given what I think the timetable is, I don't have to figure any of that out. I can just uh, <laughs> pontificate about it, but um, th- th- there are two sort of related tensions. One is financial. You know, we have schools with annual budgets in excess of $250 million competing with schools whose annual budget is $25 million. Um, that's part of it. But the other is cultural. Um, we'll be schools that are very committed to integrating athletics into the educational mission of the university and schools that really have a model where they license the school name to run a sports enterprise. Both are valid, but they're very different. So I think there'll be financial tensions and cultural tensions. I don't know how it will ultimately sort sort itself out, but um, I hope they play each other in some some championship format. But even if they don't, I, I think conference athletics will remain vital. Um, and, and, and actually, there's something to be said for having more than one association, because the reason the NCAA loses every antitrust lawsuit is there is only one association. Hmm. And, and, and they have a monopoly over college athletics. Oh, that's an interesting point. Um, by the way, do you have any evidence, uh, statistical, anecdotal, uh, or otherwise, that athletes who graduate, who get their college degrees, do better uh, either financially or in life? Um, certainly, plentiful anecdotal evidence. Um, it, it would be hard to, to have statistical evidence because what's the measure of success? Um, you know, somebody who goes on to have an enormous impact in society but doesn't generate a lot of income versus somebody who generates a ton of income and may not be as uh, community-focused. So, so that's hard to measure, but we have, we, we have example after example of people who have played sports for us who go on to do remarkable things. Um, New York Times did a feature on, on, on Pat Connaughton a while back. Pat's a very successful NBA player, NBA championship ring, and he played a central role in the Bucks achieving that. He's got an incredibly successful real estate development company with projects all over the United States and that he's been able to build in a parallel path while he's being successful in the NBA. Um, we have, you know, our, from, from our time, you know, we've used the example of Alan Page a lot, an extraordinary successful football player who went on to become a Supreme Court justice in Minnesota, an author of child books, uh, force in, in, in social issues. So yeah, anecdotally, I could go on all day. Um, mm-hmm. what I would tell you with certainty is. When our alums come back and visit, and I get a chance to chat with them. And I say to them, who was the most influential person during your time at Notre Dame? They will almost always identify a coach. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Jack Swarbrick, discussing how mentoring student athletes is becoming more difficult. This is Dan Hesse, and this is the Mentors Radio Show. And now... Back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with Athletic Director Jack Swarbrick about the potential breakup of the NCAA. So, uh, so Jack, you know, um, like you, I've had a, I have a lot of friends 
who have played professional sports, been in the NFL, and a number of them have told me that teammates of theirs, you know, in, in professional football, who, let's say, went to, for lack of a better term, football schools, lived in football dorms, and what have you, have a more difficult time with retirement because they've never developed any interests outside of football. But I see it in business, too. I can't tell you how many executives and others I've known that you know just are total workaholics and don't develop any outside interests. You know, they they have a difficult time in the next stage in their second career or in retirement. Um, what do you do to make sure that we'll call it student athletes are uh, are well rounded? You know, for uh, for life. And then on a more personal note, what are your outside interests outside of your outside of your job? Um, putting our student athletes in a position where they are prepared for what comes next and benefit from their time in Notre Dame is central to our mission. And, and almost everything we do sort of reinforces that. So, for example, at most schools today, if you're a talented athlete, you're, you're being presented with a housing option that is different from a normal student typically and probably is dominated by other student athletes. At Notre Dame, we have a three-year residentiality requirement. You're living in a, in a residence hall for three years. You know, you may love the three-bedroom apartment you see off campus, at, as you say, at a football school. Well, we're going to ask you to compare that to a double at Dillon Hall, um, which, is, which is very different. But what we help you understand, we hope, is those relationships – you know, your your roommate's not going to know a basketball from a football, perhaps, but they're going to go on to do great things in life. And we want to put you in that environment. In, the, in what we offer you, we work very hard to say, how can we make sure the student-athlete has the same opportunities as the other students? So, for example, a, a very high percentage of Notre Dame students spend, spend a semester abroad studying. Athletes can't do it. Their, their schedules don't allow it. So we built a four-week summer program of study abroad that they can participate in. They take full advantage of it. Um, when, the, when the job fair is going on, our student-athletes are likely to be at practice. So we developed a separate job fair at a different time with employers who see value in student-athletes to create that opportunity for them. I could go on and on, but it's, it's trying to make sure that we put our student athletes in an environment where they build relationships with non-athletes and have the same experiences as other students to, to put them in a position where they can have a lot of interest in life. Mine tend to be very much uh, connected to family. Um, I have four marvelous kids and now two, two grandchildren. And, uh, you know, it was great. We got to see the lacrosse team play in Annapolis this weekend. We got to see my grandson who lives there with my son and daughter-in-law. So families first. Now, beyond that, it's reading and writing. Um, I love to write. And uh, as I as, as uh, my career winds down, uh, I look forward to doing even more of that. So I, I hear you like music, too. What, what kind of music do you listen to? Pretty eclectic. Boy, I, um, I, I tend to love great vocalists and great singer-songwriters. So I may decide one morning to wake up and tell Spotify to play some Tony Bennett or Ella Fitzgerald for me. 
Hmm. Or I may ask it to play John Prine or Jason Isbell as a great singer songwriter. So it's, uh, it's all over the map. Yeah. It's, um, I'm a big music nut. It's surprising somebody who had the least amount of musical talent in probably any music class I've ever been in loves music so much. Well, um, I think that's the way it goes. I mean, I, I got kicked out of the second grade choir in grade school and all you had to do was be in the second grade. Um, but I couldn't be worth a darn. And I think that's why I love music so much. <laughs> this is Dan Hesse. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show, and we are with Notre Dame's Jack Swarbrick talking about changes coming to college athletics. So, Jack, how do you define success? Um, in my current job, I define success as putting the 740 student athletes that I work with in a position to achieve their goals, to, to get a full education at the University of Notre Dame, and to become a force for good, the phrase you're familiar with, in their communities. What about success in life for you? How would, what, what would that entail? You know, I think there are two things for me. One is loving what you do. Mm-hmm. You know, do you, do you find something you're passionate about that you love. And, and frankly, if you, if you haven't, keep looking. Um, and the other is, can you see impact? It may be impact on one person or two people. It may be impact on a whole community, but, but passion and impact are, are the twin towers for me. What about happiness? How do you, how do you define happiness? I think if you're passionate about what you do and you're having impact on the lives of others, I can't imagine not being happy, but, Boy, I tell young people all the time, um, two things I tell them. One is be open to opportunities. Young people today are so focused on a goal. I'm going to med school. I'm going to Wall Street. That they miss a lot of opportunities coming their way that they should be open Mm -hmm. to, right? Um, But the other is you got to be happy with what you do. There's no, don't don't strike those bargains. You know, I'm going to be miserable for seven years, but then I'll be a partner, right? Those, Those are bad bargains. You, you, you should love what you do. I, I agree. Um, by the way, talking about loving what you do, it sounds like you love your job, but when you're watching a Notre Dame team play, you know, competing in a game, can you actually enjoy the game or are you just, are you all stressed out? Uh, like coaches normally are as an AD, they don't really have fun during the game because they, they, they want the team to win so much. Well, the biggest surprise to me in this job was that it changed how I, how I consumed a sport contest. I obviously care desperately whether we win or lose. But once you build a relationship with the individual student-athletes, what happens to them becomes more important to you. Mm. So I've been, I've been part of great victories where someone got hurt, and, and I'm just devastated for them. Conversely, I've been part of some games we didn't do so well, but maybe a young person got in the game for the first time ever or achieved a personal best. Those are great moments. But when, uh, when people join me for, uh, especially football games, my staff is always quick to tell them, don't try and talk to it. You know, because you, I get so focused on what's going on in the field of play um, that I'm completely antisocial for those two and a half hours. So, Jack, have, have any mentors played a key role for you in your career? Oh, my gosh, yes. It um, starts with my, my parents. 
um, who were extraordinary people. Um, I'm a first generation college student, as are my sisters, but they made sure that happened. Um, just, just, just remarkable people influenced my life every day still. Um, a football coach in high school who was brilliant and produced an incredibly successful team, was certainly a mentor. Two middle school teachers who really got me started in the right path, one English and one a, a class advisor. Um, and, and then in my, in my career, uh, a partner in particular, the law firm I went to work for, who was a big, a big reason I went there. But in my hometown of Indianapolis, especially community leaders, um, people who have made a difference in this community and, and got me involved in it. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Jack Swarbrick. You will find all of our show notes and links at TheMentorsRadio.com. When you're there, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of our shows. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with renowned athletic director Jack Swarbrick discussing mentorship. So, Jack, you've got a huge job. I mean, there's so many things that go into the AD's role. Um, how do you, you know, how do you handle your time demands? I had a great piece of advice many years ago from uh, the head of Eli Lilly at the time. And I was picking his brain about his management dynamic, and he said, um, he said, every day there are 100 things that command my attention. He said, my job is to ignore 97 of them. And I was so struck by the fact he didn't say my job was to pay attention to three of them. He said it was to ignore 97 of them. Because that's what happens, as you know, right? It's, it's all the other things that people are pulling on you to, to walk in your office and say, hey, what do you think about X or Y? You want to engage. You want to be supportive of them. But if... I don't stay disciplined on the things that only I can do, the long-term strategy, the engagement with the industry, um, some of the financial aspects. That's what I have to do. And every, every moment I allow myself to do something else takes away from that. So that discipline is central to my approach. And then the other is empowering people. But work very hard at attracting good people, A, talent, but, but empower them. One of the things I, I, I work hard to try and get my, my team to understand is I want you to make the decision. You have to be okay that I may later tell you I would have done something else. But that doesn't mean I don't want you to make the decision now. So that, that, that empowering and trusting is a big part for me. I think you're absolutely right. You know, I think if you have you know, a clear strategy, everybody knows what the game plan is, and you have kind of a culture and ethic built, you can delegate effectively, which is important, I think, for, uh, you know, for a leader like, uh, you know, like, like you. And, and do you also, you know, there's, there's the things that you're responsible for, but do you also try to um, put away time to just reflect and think? Yes, yes, absolutely. And um, it, it, it's, of course, you, you, you can get a little defensive about that. Because someone will come into my office and I'll just be sitting thinking, right? And they'll say, you know, <laughs> nothing. Well, you, know, that's what, you know, for yeah. me, that's where travel came in. Because, uh, you know, on the, my time on the airplane, 
because I was almost always traveling by myself. That was my time that I would have as I knew it was my time to think about what we ought to be doing that we're not doing, uh, et cetera. So Jack, go ahead. A big part of that for me is reading things that aren't directly online with my profession, right? My job. Challenge yourself by reading, you know, I love to read Wired magazine. It makes me think about things that, I, that have nothing to do with sports or are important to my business. That's interesting. You know, when I was, I read Wired and Fast Company and MIT Technology Review voraciously, even though they weren't directly related to mobile, just to kind of know what was going on out there in in the area of innovation and technology. Uh, and it kind of expanded the mind and had me think, and I think we did some things differently as a result. Um, final question, uh, after you retire, what do you want to be remembered for? Um, I, I'd like to be remembered for having been an effective advocate for the model of college athletics that fully integrates the sport experience into the educational one. We're the only country in the world that has that model. Hmm. I think it's a really good one, and I think it's worth fighting for. Well said. Um, well, thanks for joining us today, Jack. Uh, I think we we all want what's best long-term for our student-athletes, so keep fighting that good fight. To our listeners, please go to thementorsradio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also lis- listen to us online on any device at any time on any podcast platform like Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify. Join us next week at the same time for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.